Section 5. Part 1 of Section 2 of the Introduction of the Commentaries on the Laws of England. Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Kwan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blexton. Book 1. Introduction, Section 2, Part 1. Section the Second. Of the Nature of Laws in General. Law, in its most general and comprehensive sense, signifies a rule of action, and is applied indiscriminately to all kinds of action, whether animate or inanimate, rational or irrational. Thus we say, the laws of motion, of gravitation, of optics, or mechanics, as well as the laws of nature and of nations, and it is that rule of action which is prescribed by some superior and which the inferior is bound to obey. Thus, when the Supreme Being formed the universe and created matter out of nothing, he impressed certain principles upon that matter, from which it can never depart, and without which it would cease to be. When he put that matter into motion, he established certain laws of motion, to which all movable bodies must conform, and to descend from the greatest operation to the smallest. When a workman forms a clock, or other piece of mechanism, he establishes at his own pleasure certain arbitrary laws for its direction, as that the hand shall describe a given space in a given time, to which law, as long as the work conforms, so long it continues in perfection, and answers the end of its formation. If we further advance from mere inactive matter to vegetable and animal life, we shall find them still governed by laws, more numerous indeed, but equally fixed and invariable. The whole progress of plants, from the seed to the root, and from thence to the seed again, the method of animal nutrition, digestion, secretion, and all other branches of vital economy, are not left to chance or the will of the creature itself, but are performed in a wondrous involuntary manner, and guided by unerring rules laid down by the great Creator. This, then, is the general signification of law, a rule of action dedicated by some superior being, and in those creatures that have neither the power to think nor the will, such laws must be invariably obeyed, so long as the creature itself subsists, for its existence depends upon that obedience. But laws, in their more confined sense, and in which it is our present business to consider them, denote the rules, not of action in general, but of human action or conduct, that is, the precepts by which man, the noblest of all sublunary beings, a creature endowed with both reason and free will, is commanded to make use of those faculties in the general regulation of his behavior. Man considered as a creature, must necessarily be subject to the laws of his Creator, for he is entirely a dependent being, a being 
independent of any other, has no rule to pursue, but such as he prescribes to himself. But a state of dependence will inevitably oblige the inferior to take the will of him, on whom he depends, as the rule of his conduct. Not indeed in every particular, but in all those points wherein his dependence consists. This principle, therefore, has more or less extent, an effect, in proportion as the superiority of the one and the dependence of the other is greater or less, absolute or limited, and consequently, as man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will. This will of his maker is called the law of nature, for as God, when he created matter, and endued it with a principle of mobility, established certain rules for the perpetual direction of that motion, so, when he created man, and endued him with free will to conduct himself in all parts of life, he laid down certain immutable laws of human nature, whereby that free will is in some degree regulated and restrained, and gave him also the faculty of reason to discover the purport of those laws. Considering the Creator only as a being of infinite power, he was able unquestionably to have prescribed whatever laws he pleased to his creature, man, however unjust or severe. But, as he is also a being of infinite wisdom, he has laid down only such laws as were founded in those relations of justice that existed in the nature of things antecedent to any positive precept. These are the eternal, immutable laws of good and evil, to which the Creator himself, in all his dispensations, conforms, and which he has enabled human reason to discover, so far as they are necessary for the conduct of human actions. Such, among others, are these principles, that we should live honestly, should hurt nobody, and should render to every one its due, to which three general precepts Justinian has reduced the whole doctrine of law. But if the discovery of these first principles of the law of nature depended only upon the due exertion of right reason, and could not otherwise be attained than by a chain of metaphysical disquisitions, mankind would have wanted some inducement to have quickened their inquiries, and the greater part of the world would have rested content in mental indolence, and ignorance its inseparable companion. As therefore the Creator is a being, not only of infinite power and wisdom, but also of infinite goodness, he has been pleased to contrive the constitution and frame of humanity, that we should want no other prompter to inquire after and pursue the rule of right, but only our own self-love, that universal principle of action. For he has so intimately connected, so inseparably interwoven, the laws of eternal justice with the happiness of each individual, that the latter cannot be attained but by observing the former, and, if the former be punctually obeyed, it cannot but induce the latter. 
in consequence of which mutual connection of justice and human felicity, he has not perplexed the law of nature with a multitude of abstracted rules and precepts, referring merely to the fitness or unfitness of things, as some have vainly surmised, but has graciously reduced the rule of obedience to this one paternal precept, that man should pursue his own happiness. This is the foundation of what we call ethics, or natural law, for the several articles into which it is branched in our own systems amount to no more than demonstrating that this or that action tends to a man's real happiness, and therefore very justly concluding that the performance of it is a part of the law of nature, or, on the other hand, that this or that action is destructive of man's real happiness, and therefore that the law of nature forbids. This law of nature, being coeval with mankind and dedicated by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding all over the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. And such of them as are valid derive all their force and all their authority, immediately or immediately, from this original. But in order to apply this to the particular exigencies of each individual, it is still necessary to have recourse to reason, whose office it is to discover, as was before observed, what the law of nature directs in every circumstance of life. By considering what method will tend to most effectually to our own substantial happiness. And if our reason were always, as in our first ancestor before his transgression, clear and perfect, unruffled by passions, unclouded by prejudice, unimpaired by disease or intemperance, the task would be pleasant and easy. We should need no other guide but this. But every man now finds the contrary in his own experience, that his reason is corrupt, and his understanding full of ignorance and error. This has given manifold occasion for the benign interposition of divine providence, which, in companion to the frailty, the imperfection, and the blindness of human reason, hath been pleased, at sun-dry times, and in diverse manners, to discover and enforce its laws by an immediate and direct revelation. The doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the holy scriptures. These precepts, when revealed, are found upon comparison to be really a part of the original law of nature, as they tend in all their consequences to man's felicity. But we are not from thence to conclude that the knowledge of these truths was attainable by reason, in its present corrupted state, since we find that, until they were revealed, they were hid from the wisdom of ages. As then, the moral precepts of this law are indeed the same original with those of the law of nature, so their intrinsic obligation is of equal strength and perpetuity. Yet undoubtedly, the revealed law is, humanly speaking, 
of infinitely more authority than what we generally call the natural law, because one is the law of nature, expressly declared so to be by God himself. The other is only what, by the assistance of human reason, we imagine to be that law. If we could be as certain of the latter as we are of the former, both would have an equal authority. But, till then, they can never be put in any competition together. Upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, depend all human laws. That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. There is, it is true, a great number of indifferent points, in which both the divine and the natural leave a man at his own liberty, but which are found necessary for the benefit of society to be restrained within certain limits. And herein it is that human laws have their greatest force and efficacy. For, with regard to such points as are not indifferent, human laws are only declaratory of and act in subordination to the former. To instance, in the case of murder, this is expressly forbidden by the divine and demonstrably by the natural law, and from these prohibitions arises the true unlawfulness of this crime. Those human laws that annex a punishment to it do not at all increase its moral guilt or superadd any fresh obligation in foro conscientiae to abstain from its perpetration. Nay, if any human law should allow or enjoin us to commit it, we are bound to transgress that human law, or else we must offend both the natural and the divine. But with regard to matters that are in themselves indifferent, and are not commended or forbidden by those superior laws, such, for instance, as exporting of wool into foreign countries, here the inferior legislature has scope and opportunity to interpose, and to make that action unlawful, which before was not so. If man were to live in a state of nature, unconnected with other individuals, there would be no occasion for any other laws than the law of nature and the law of God. Neither could any other law possibly exist, for a law always supposes some superior who is to make it, and in a state of nature we are all equal without any other superior but him who is the author of our being. But man was formed for society, and, as is demonstrated by the writers on this subject, is neither capable of leaving alone, nor indeed has the courage to do it. However, as it is impossible for the whole race of mankind to be united in one great society, they must necessarily divide into many, and form separate states, commonwealths, and nations, entirely independent of each other, and yet liable to a mutual intercourse. Hence arises a third kind of law to regulate this mutual intercourse, called the law of nations, which, as none of these states will acknowledge a superiority in the other, cannot be dictated by either, but depends entirely upon the rules of natural law, or upon mutual compacts, treaties, leagues, and agreements between these several communities, in the construction 
also of which compacts, we have no other rule to resort to but the law of nature, being the only one to which both communities are equally subject. And therefore the civil law very justly observed, that quod naturalis ratio inter omnes omines constituit, vocatur jus gentium. Thus much I thought it necessary to premise concerning the law of nature, the revealed law, and the law of nations, before I proceed to treat more fully of the principal subject of this section, municipal or civil law, that is, the rule by which particular districts, communities, or nations are governed, being thus defined by Justinian, Jus civile est quod quisque civi populus constituit. I call it municipal law, in compliance with common speech, for, though strictly, that expression denotes the particular customs of one single municipium or free town, yet it may be sufficient propriety to be applied in any one state or nation which is governed by the same laws and customs. Municipal law, thus understood, is properly defined to be a rule of civil conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state, commanding what is right, and prohibiting what is wrong. Let us endeavor to explain its several properties, as they arise out of this definition. And first, it is a rule, not a transient sudden order from a superior to, or concerning a particular person, but something permanent, uniform, and universal. Therefore, a particular act of the legislature to confiscate the goods of Titius, or to attain him of high treason, does not enter into the idea of a municipal law, for the operation of this act is spent upon Titius only, and has no relation to the community in general. It is rather a sentence than a law, but an act to declare that the crime of which Titius is accused shall be deemed high treason. This has permanency, uniformity, and universality, and therefore is properly a rule. It is also called a rule, to distinguish it from advice or counsel, which we are at liberty to follow or not, as we see proper, and to judge upon the reasonableness or unreasonableness of the thing advised. Whereas our obedience to the law depends not only upon our approbation, but upon the maker's will. Counsel is only matter of persuasion. Law is matter of injunction. Counsel acts only upon the willing. Law upon the unwilling also. It is also called a rule. To distinguish it from a compact or agreement, for a compact is a promise proceeding from us, law is a command directed to us. The language of a compact is, I will, or will not, do this. That of a law is, Thou shalt, or shalt not, do it. It is true, there is an obligation which a compact carries with it, equal in point of conscience to that of a law. But then the original of the obligation is different. In compact, we ourselves determine and promise what shall be done, 
Therefore, we are obliged to do it. In laws, we are obliged to act, without ourselves determining or promising anything at all. Upon these accounts, law is defined to be a rule. Municipal law is also a rule of civil conduct. This distinguishes municipal law from the natural or revealed. The former, of which is the rule of moral conduct, and the latter, not only the rule of moral conduct, but also the rule of faith. These regard man as a creature, and point out his duty to God, to himself, and to his neighbor, considered in the light of an individual. But municipal or civil law regards him also as a citizen, and bound to other duties towards his neighbor, than those of mere nature and religion, duties which he has engaged in by enjoying the benefits of the common union, and which amount to no more than that he do contribute, on his part, to the subsistence and peace of the society. It is likewise a rule prescribed, because a beer resolution, confined in the breast of the legislator, without manifesting itself by some external sign, can never be properly a law. It is requisite that this resolution be notified to the people who are to obey it, but the manner in which this notification is to be made is matter of very great indifference. It may be notified by universal tradition and long practice, which supposes a previous publication, and is the case of the common law of England. It may be notified viva voce, by officers appointed for that purpose, as is done with regard to proclamations, and such acts of Parliament are appointed to be publicly read in churches and other assemblies. It may lastly be notified by writing, printing, or the like, which is the general course taken with all our acts of Parliament. Yet, whatever way is made use of, it is incumbent on the promulgators to do it in the most public and perspicuous manner, not like Caligula, who, according to Dio Cassius, wrote his laws in a very small character, and hung them up upon high pillars, the more effectually to ensnare the people. There is still a more unreasonable method than this, which is called making of laws ex post facto, when, after an action is committed, the legislator then, for the first time, declares it to have been a crime, and inflicts a punishment upon the person who has committed it. Here it is impossible that a party could foresee that an action, innocent when it was done, should be afterwards converted to guilt by a subsequent law. He had therefore no cause to abstain from it, and all punishment, for not abstaining, must of consequence be cruel and unjust. All laws should be therefore made, to commence in futuro, and be notified before the commencement, which is implied in the term prescribed. But when this rule is in the usual manner notified, or prescribed, it is then the subject's business to be thoroughly acquainted therewith. For, if ignorance of what he might know were admitted as a legitimate excuse, the laws would be of no effect, but might always be eluded with impunity. But further, municipal law is a rule of civil conduct prescribed 
by the supreme power in a state. For a legislature, as was before observed, it is the greatest act of superiority that can be exercised by one being over another. Wherefore, it is requisite to the very essence of the law that it be made by the supreme power. Sovereignty and legislature are indeed convertible terms. One cannot subsist without the other. This will naturally lead us into a short inquiry concerning the nature of society and civil government, and the natural, inherent right that belongs to the sovereignty of a state, wherever that sovereignty be lodged, of making and enforcing laws. End of section 5